Hey, if you have a Bible today, let's go to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. And, you know, a, a lot of you have asked me recently, hey, where's the old cattle gate? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, 18 years ago, this property was fenced off and there was a cattle gate back here on the backside of the property. And I jumped that gate 18 years ago and just started praying and dreaming about what God maybe wanted to do on this property one day. And then when we broke ground out here a few years ago, we brought that cattle gate out. You remember that? We put it right out here where the front doors are right now. And most all of you that were here that day, you, you took a, we thought it was a permanent marker and you, you signed your name on it. But you know what? A few months into that cattle gate sitting out there in the summer sun, you couldn't find a name on the thing. They had all disappeared. And that's kind of okay with us. That's sort of the way we want things to be around Grace Life. We don't want any of our names to be written in permanent marker. We don't want our names to be the names that last. But the name of Jesus is the name that we want to be lifted up and exalted. We want his name to last forever. And I'm really humbled and grateful that that story of jumping the gate is part of our story here at Grace Life. But here's my heart today. That gate doesn't matter anymore. That was 18 years ago. That was a long time ago. I'm really not interested in that gate anymore. The gate that I'm most interested in today is the gate that God is putting in front of you. See, I believe that God is putting a gate in front of every single one of his people And he's inviting you to jump over that gate and to follow God's purposes for your life, to follow God's plan for your life, God's dream for your life. See, at the end of the day, I don't want Grace Life to be known as a community of believers that was led by a crazy dreamer. I want Grace Life to be a community of crazy dreamers who are actually believing and trusting God for God-sized things to happen in our lives and through his, through our lives for his glory. And, and I believe God's doing that in your hearts and lives. And I sense that and I'm thankful for that. And I'm excited about that. And we should be thinking that way. You know, the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Hey, teach us how to pray. And, and Jesus said, Will you pray like this? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Jesus is actually encouraging his people to pray for and to believe that the kingdom of God can come into our world, that the will of God can be accomplished in our lives and in our communities and in our families and in our world, and that that can happen. And he's inviting us to join him in that. And here's the deal. I believe every Christ follower in this room today, whether you know what, the, what it is or, or not, I believe there's a gate that God's putting in front of you to jump. There's a line of demarcation between where you are right now and where God wants to take you and what God wants to accomplish through your life that brings him glory. And that's exciting to me and I hope it is to you. The next gate that I believe God wants me to jump is this one to help you jump the gate that God's put in front of you to jump. Among other things, the role of a pastor is to equip the people of God, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And that's what I want to do if God will allow me to do that. But here's the deal. Lee, I can't do that for you if you refuse to believe God. I love you, brother, but I can't pick your backside up and toss you over that gate 
every single one of us is going to have to believe that Jesus said, I want you to pray this way. And I want you to believe this way, that the kingdom of God will come. And the will of God can be done on earth as it's done in heaven. You have to climb over that gate. You have to jump over it in faith for yourself. And I know we got a lot of excuses. Well, Pastor Joel, I'm just too old to be jumping a gate. Really? I'm too young to be jumping a gate. I I don't know enough. Pastor Joel, how am I supposed to do that? I'm not qualified. I'm not gifted. I'm not skilled. I'm just too tired. I've jumped a lot of gates. I'm too tired to jump another gate. I'm hurt. I'm, I'm insignificant. I've got too many problems. I've got too many issues. Listen, when when you think about a person in God's word that God put a dream in their heart, I go to the Old Testament and I think about a man by the name of Joseph. And and I want to do a deep dive for the next few weeks into Joseph's life. And we'll call this journey No Average Joe. No Average Joe. He probably felt average or below average at times, but in God, there is no such thing as average. Joseph's odds of jumping a God-given gate, his odds of pursuing God's purposes and plans and his dream for his life, his odds of doing that weren't average. They were well below average by the world's standards. If you think the odds of God giving you a gate to jump If you think the odds of God calling you to do something significant for his glory in this world are below average, you need to meet Joseph. Because his odds were even below any of your odds. If you're here today and you're thinking, listen, my life is just too messy. There's just been too many things that have gone on in my life that it's beyond the scope of what God can do now in me and through me. Then you need to meet Joseph today. And really, before you meet Joseph, you need to meet Joseph's family today. And so for preaching this today, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge for me because, you know, I like to take just a little bit of Scripture and dive really deep off into that Scripture. But today, we're going to have to kind of fly at 10,000 feet to sort of survey the backstory of Joseph's family and where he comes from. And this is why catching you up to speed like this is going to be sort of a challenge. I don't know if you know this or not. But the writer of the book of Genesis, he talks more about Joseph than any other character in the book of Genesis. He gets more screen time than anybody else in the book of Genesis. So catching us up is going to be a little bit of a challenge. Here's also what's interesting. Even though Joseph gets more screen time than anybody else in the book of Genesis, God is quieter in the midst of Joseph's life than he is the other characters in the book of Genesis. He walked and talked with Adam in the garden. He walked and he talked with Enoch. He talked to Abraham, to Noah. But with Joseph, who gets all this screen time in the book of Genesis, he gets crickets from God. And some of you may be thinking that today about your life and your story. Where's God? I think I'm just getting crickets from God. And I want to say this to you today. Don't mistake the silence of God for the absence of God. 
God was not absent in the story of Joseph's life. And he is not absent in the story of your life either. And I know that life can get crazy. And maybe your life is a crazy life. And you're thinking, this is just too much. My life and me, just too much for God to deal with. Then I want to say this, buckle up, Bubba. Because you haven't seen anything till you see Joseph's family. They are a mess. They are the most jacked up family that I think we could ever meet. Their story is probably a story, and, and I'm kind of glad that the fours and fives are in kids' church today, because honestly, the story of Joseph and his family is rough. I don't think Netflix would even pick it up, all right? And yet, we're going to try to talk about it here in this room with first graders present. So adults, just kind of help me and lock in, and you'll sort of understand what's happening. So to understand Joseph's backstory, you got to know a little bit about his dad. His dad is a man by the name of Jacob. And that name tips us off because Jacob's name means the deceiver. And his name rightly describes the way that Joseph's father, Jacob, lived his life. He was a conniving, lying manipulator. He was a con man. He conned his own father. He conned his own brother, Esau. The only thing equal to Jacob's ability to con people was his ability to stay focused on something that he really wanted. After he burned the bridges with his father and with his brother and his brother wants to kill him, he has to get out of Dodge. And so Jacob runs away and and he goes to work for a man by the name of Laban. As he's working for Laban, one day he happens to see Laban's youngest daughter and her name is Rachel. And he kind of got those googly eyes, ooga, ooga, right? And all of a sudden he is focused on this young woman named Rachel. And so he goes to his employer, Laban, and he begins to kind of explain the situation. Hey, uh, I'm kind of sweet on your your daughter, Rachel, and I think maybe she and I have a a future together, you know? And so Laban says, okay, well, if you want to marry her so bad, here's the deal. You work for me for seven years, and when those seven years are over, then I will let you take my daughter, Rachel, to be your wife. Now, ironically, Laban is every much a con man as Jacob is. So Jacob works himself silly for those seven years to earn the right to marry Rachel. And at the end of those seven years, one night, Jacob brings Rachel over to, or or Laban brings Rachel over to Jacob's tent so they could consummate the marriage relationship. But he doesn't bring Rachel. He sneaks in his oldest daughter, Leah. And Jacob doesn't know. And you can imagine the shock when the sun rose up the morning after the honeymoon and he realizes this is the wrong woman. This is the older sister who maybe we can read into that was on the verge of becoming an old maid and Laban didn't want that to happen so he slips her in the tent. You can imagine Jacob is not happy about this. He's quite livid and he goes to Laban and he's ripping and he's roaring and Laban says, okay, okay, listen, I know you really want to marry my other daughter and I'll let you do that. But here's the deal. You got to work for me another seven years. 
And Jacob agrees to do that. Now he's got two wives. Crazy, I know. We're just getting started. It gets way worse. So Leah starts having babies. Rachel wants to have babies, but she's not having any babies. And this is really troubling her. And so I asked you to turn to Genesis 30, and we finally get there. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. The Bible says, when Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. And she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Okay, not only is Jacob a con man, but he's pretty insensitive too, right? She's like, I got to have kids or I'm going to die. And he gets furious with her and says, am I God? He's the one who's kept you from having children. Then Rachel told him, take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her, I can have a family too. That's what Jacob does. He and Bilhah end up having two children together. So now we've got three women, a lot of children, and one baby daddy. Some of you are like, I didn't know this was in the Bible. Y'all, the Old Testament is rough. It's rough. And so here's what's going on. We're just getting started. Meanwhile, Leah's getting older. Wife number one, she's getting older. And her reproductive system is beginning to slow down a little bit. But not to be outdone by her little sister, she goes to Jacob and says, Hey, listen, I want you to have some babies by my servant also. And so Jacob decides, okay, I'll do that. And so he has a couple of more babies with her servant, Zilpah. So now we've got a lot more children. Here's the score if you're keeping up. Wife number one, Leah, has six boys and one girl. Her servant, Zilpah, has two boys. I have to read this to get it right. Bilhah, the other servant girl, has two boys. Wife number two, Rachel, has none except the two that are servant birth that she claims as her own. So here's the tally, right? 10 boys, one girl, one dad, four mamas. Anybody starting to feel a little bit better about your family now? (laughs) Right? We're not, we're not as horrible as we kind of thought we were up to this point. And then this happens. Look at chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said, and she named him Joseph. For she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. So here's Joseph. He's been born into this crazy, crazy family now. And don't forget, this whole time, Jacob has been working, con man, working for con man Laban. And and Laban and his sons are starting to wise up to some things about Jacob. And Jacob starts sensing he's kind of getting the side eye from Laban and his brother-in-laws. And and, and so he kind of has this feeling that something bad is is about to go down. And and so he gets his wives together and he has a talk with them and he kind of unloads the dirt on their father and says, hey, I think it's about to get really nasty and ugly around here. So we need to get our stuff and we need to get our family and we need to get out of here. Now at this time, Joseph, little baby Joseph, he's just a little kid. He's the youngest. Some of his brothers are probably well up into their teenage years now, but he's probably like little boys and girls up here a moment ago. 
Little Joseph's like maybe six or seven years old. And, and just imagine being him. This is the only place he knows. This is the only home that he knows. He's, he's had the joy of being able to be raised up around his grandpa Laban and aunts and uncles. But he starts to notice that dad and mom and aunt stepmom, they're, they're, they're whispering a lot in the kitchen. And, and things seem to be pretty intense. Something seems wrong. And then they tell all the children one night at dinner, hey guys, we're, we're moving. Well, where, where are we moving to? Well, we don't know. Well, when? When are we going to move? Tonight. So find your shoes. How many parents know that phrase is coming out of your mouth before you leave the house with your, your kids, right? If you had told me before we had kids how many hours would be spent looking for shoes. Well, find your shoes. And so they sneak out in the middle of the night when Laban realizes that his family has all left with all their possessions, he snaps. He wants to get his hands around Jacob's throat, as you can imagine. So he grabs his boys, he grabs his people, and he sets off after Jacob and their convoy, and he's ready to wring Jacob's neck. But God stops Jacob on the way, and he says, hey, listen, don't do any harm to Jacob. And so when he catches up, when Laban catches up to Jacob, he gives him a chewing out, but he says, hey, I can't stop you. But I, I will ask for this. When y'all left my place, somebody in your party stole my gods. Laban worshiped these little false gods. He had these little statues. And now they've turned up missing. Somebody has taken them. You want to guess who took them? You're not going to believe this. Joseph's mama took them. Rachel stole the gods out of her daddy's cupboard. And I just wonder if little Joseph watched mama do this. He, he's watching all this. He's taking all this in. This family's crazy. Now, now, Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen these. He thinks this is a false accusation. So Jacob says to Laban, hey, nobody took your gods. Nobody wants that mess. And he says, yeah, somebody took them. Well, shake us down. Frisk everybody if you want to. We don't have them. So that's what Laban starts doing. He starts shaking everybody down. And when he gets to Rachel, she's sitting there on the ground on, on, on a saddlebag that's got the idols in that saddlebag. And, and when he comes in, she says to her dad, please forgive me for not standing up. And here's how the King James says it. The way of women is upon me. That's, that's just a nice way to say it's just an inconvenient time during this month, dad, for me to stand up and talk to you. So I'm just going to sit here. And so he gave her a pass. That's Joseph's mama. She's a liar and a thief and an idol worshiper on top of everything else that's going on. You think little Joseph might have seen all this, might have heard all this, might have watched all this stuff go down in his little minds trying to process this crazy cast of characters that he's living with is called his family. He must have a thousand questions running through his mind. He's just a little kid. How much has he seen? How much has he heard? And his grandpa Laban knows this is the last time he's going to see his family. And he goes down the line, hugging them, telling them goodbye. And last but not least, there's the, the baby of the family. There's Joseph, little six, seven-year-old Joseph. And granddad just hugs him and 
pulls him close, tears rolling down his face. Listen, that's just the beginning for Joseph. Joseph's going to have to learn what living with this kind of pain is like. He's going to have to learn what it's like to live with your heart being ripped out like this on a consistent basis. So Jacob continues, right? He continues to now leave Laban and take the caravan of his family and people back in this direction. And here's the problem. Over in this direction is his old brother Esau. He got out of this town because of Esau. Esau wanted to kill him because of how he ripped Esau off. Now he's headed back toward Esau. And so Jacob is processing this. He's made a mess everywhere he's gone. And now he finds out Esau has heard that he's coming this way. And he's found out that Esau has sent 400 men in their direction. Well, things are getting tense now. And so here's what happens next. Little Joseph caught up in the middle of all this lying, cheating, conniving, thieving. I wonder if anybody's taking care of him. Anybody consoling him? Anybody talking to him? Anybody answering his questions? Look at chapter 33, verse 1. Then Jacob looked up and he saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. And Joseph must have wondered, why am I always in the back? On the hump, in the middle. Why have I always got to be that guy in the back? Strangely enough, though, Jacob's brother Esau doesn't kill him. He shows them mercy. And they start to settle down in a little place called Shechem. Now, remember, we've got all these boys and we've got one daughter. One daughter named Dinah. And, and one day, she gets snatched in Shechem by the mayor's son. And the unthinkable happens to this young lady. Well, well then the boy's dad, he, he wants to smooth things over, right? Let's sweep this thing up under the rug. Don't, don't want my son to have to go to prison or be executed. So he brings all of his people to meet with Jacob and the boys and says, hey, listen, let's, let's work all this out. See, over here in Shechem, we got a bunch of daughters, and y'all got a bunch of boys. And so what we can do that will help all of us is, is we'll arrange a bunch of marriages, right? And then everybody can live happily ever after. Well, Jacob's boys, they've learned how to be con men too. And so they say to the man from Shechem, hey, listen, that sounds like a, a good idea, but there's, there's one big problem. Our, our families can't come together because of this problem. You see, in, in our tradition, all the males have to be circumcised. And, and none of your men have ever been circumcised. And so if we're going to bring our families together like this, then all the men are going to have to agree to get circumcised. And gentlemen, I don't know why, but they said yes to that. I told you, crazy story. In a few days... After the procedure had been completed, and they're all still recovering, two of Joseph's big brothers take off to the town of Shechem, and they go all braveheart on every man in the town. They killed every single man in the town. And then the other brothers came trailing behind to pillage everything that was left, including they kidnapped all the women and all the children and took them back to their home. Y'all, these are Joseph's brothers. 
This is Joseph's family. He's probably about 10 years old at that time. A couple years later, he's about 12. And he finds out, hey, Joseph, you're not going to be the baby of the family anymore. Your mom's going to have a baby. And he's so excited. Is it going to be a baby brother? Is it going to be a baby sister? I don't really care. I'm just tired of being the runt. I'm tired of being the baby. I want to have somebody underneath me, right? And so Rachel goes into labor and she gives birth to a boy and they name him Benjamin. But in the course of childbirth, Rachel dies. And here's Joseph. He's 12 years old living in this madness. And the one soft place in his life is gone. He's going to enter into his adolescent years now without his mom there with him. He must feel alone. He must feel responsible for his little brother, Benjamin. And y'all, there's no social services to step in and help out. There's no resources like that. And these are a few, but of the life-shaping moments for Joseph. And so when we get to where we're going to begin our journey together in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is 17 years old. There's practically nobody in his life that can be trusted. Everybody in his world, they lie. They steal. They manipulate. They're prone to violence. And they're often sexually out of control. That might sound familiar to some of you. That might sound like where some of you come from. That, that might sound like some of the things that your family has experienced in your past. And please hear me if you don't hear anything else today. If you're sitting here thinking to yourself as you look around this place, I don't really belong here. My life's too messy. My family's too messy. I don't fit here. These aren't my people. I don't belong here. Listen, if you don't belong here, Jesus doesn't belong here. Do you know the family that Jesus came from? Jacob's family. Joseph's family. In fact, through Joseph's brother, Judah. Jesus came through a relationship that Joseph's brother Judah had with his daughter-in-law. And before you get too bent out of shape, hey, he thought she was a prostitute. That's where Jesus came from. And if you think you're disqualified from God's grace, if you think you're disqualified from jumping a gate that God has put in front of you to accomplish his kingdom work and his will being done in this world because of who you are and where you've come from and you think you don't belong here, then I'm telling you Jesus doesn't belong here. But Jesus stepped into this mess to proclaim you do belong and you do have a purpose and I do have a plan for your life. He's got a plan for you, a purpose for you. God has a call on you. He has a dream for you. God has a gate for you to jump. So get on with it. Because next Saturday, it could be your wife calling me saying, hey, unexpectedly today, the Lord took him home. Or your husband saying unexpectedly today, the Lord called her home. I, I can't tell you where your journey is going to take you, but I can tell you where it starts. It starts at the cross 
where Jesus suffered and died in your place and my place for our sin. Next stop is an empty grave where Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave to prove there is no sin, there is no power, there is no mess, there is no devil that is too great for God to overcome. Your sin, your family's sin, the sin of the entire world is no match for the saving power of Jesus Christ. Just ask Joseph. Would you just trust today that Jesus is big enough to bring you out of your past, out of your hurt, out of the mess, out of the chaos, and to bring you over the gate that you could walk in the path that God has prepared in advance for you? Would you trust him today? Would you give him the totality of who you are? All of it, all the past, all the present, and every breath that you will ever breathe in the future. If there's one verse in the New Testament that I think really sort of encapsulate the story of Joseph, and you're going to see this as we walk through his story, it's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God works everything together, everything together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. See, I believe we're here today and you're here today because God has purposes, he has plans, he has a dream for your life that maybe you've not even conceived of yet. It hasn't even occurred to you exactly yet what God has in store. And for every follower of Jesus in this room, I'm asking God if he hasn't already, God, will you show them the gate? Would you show them, give them a glimpse of what it is you want to do in them and what you want to do through them? Would you put that in front of them today and give them eyes to see and ears to hear so that they would know that the coming of your kingdom and the accomplishment of your will in them and through them can happen? Because Jesus, you told us to pray like that. So God, help us to begin to pray like that today, that thy kingdom would come and thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because of Jesus, like Paul, we can say this. I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through, look at these last five words. Would you say it out loud with me? Christ Jesus is calling us. Christ Jesus is calling us. Christ Jesus is calling you. But not only is he calling you, if you put your faith in Jesus, he's in you. So you'll never stare at a gate and have to think for a minute, this is impossible. If it's only you standing in front of that gate, it's impossible. But as a follower of Jesus Christ in you, nothing is impossible. Not I, but Christ over the gate. Not I, but Christ down the road. Not I, but Christ living in me that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. Today's a day to lay down self. Today's a day to put our trust in Jesus, to live in us and through us. That he would jump the gate in our body and that we would get the joy of him doing that.
and that he would get the glory in that. God, I am asking you today that maybe somebody that's never even thought about the possibility, God, that they're here for a a God-sized reason, that you have kingdom work that you want to happen through them. You want your will to be accomplished through them. And and maybe we're just stuck just living day to day with really no thought of the grandness of this moment, the opportunity of this moment, God, that heaven can touch us, that our life has eternal significance and potential impact that would reverberate for all of eternity. So give us eyes to see Enlarge our hearts, God, that we could dream God-sized dreams, that your glory and the renown of your name would be the passion of our heart. I pray, God, that your call on lives today would be heard clearly. We may not know exactly where it's going, but may we today plant ourselves at the cross and believe that because of what Jesus did, there is a way forward. This is our prayer, God. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, whose earthly family was a wreck and he didn't turn away. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who will not turn away from any wrecks in this room today. Amen.